everyone. I'm leaving, uh, getting the hell out of Dodge, as you can hear, for July 4th. But I'm posting this amazing episode with Michael R. Jackson and Sophie Elman. And I uh, just want you to know that stand by this week. I will be posting... Uh, there's a guy yelling on the street in a Whitney Houston shirt. Okay, I'll be posting bonus Patreon-only episode with Michael Jackson where we talk more about his politics, his politicization, and everything like that. So for now, enjoy this great, full-figured, full-bodied episode. And then, um, yeah, you'll hear the bonus this week. Really good. Thanks. Today I have live in studio with me Michael R. Jackson, and take note of that name if you haven't already. Um, he is a book writer, composer, lyricist for musical theater. Yeah, and he playwright. has a, he's a playwright, which yeah. we'll get into because they're all these these uh, genres within that. Um, so we're going to talk to Michael about his brilliant uh, play called A Strange Loop, and then I'm going to be talking to Sophie. Elman Golan, who is going to be talking about the Never Again Action, which is a collective of Jewish activists who organized the shutdown at New Jersey's Elizabeth Detention Center. Um, Michael, welcome. Hi, Katie. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I'm glad I can have you before. Guys, this man, Michael Jackson, he's going to, there's going to be a time soon where we're going to be like, I can't believe Michael Jackson came to the studio. It's <laughs> big time. And so you have this really great play. It's a musical. Mm-hmm. It's called A Strange Loop. Right. And we're going to play the trailer for it in a couple of seconds. But um, it's at Playwrights Horizons. That's right. And um, what else do you need uh, people need to know about? It's in association with Page 73 Productions, which I co-produced with them. I sat next to Jesse, can I say this? Yes, go ahead. I sat next to Jesse Tyler Ferguson, mm-hmm. who is from um, Modern Family, uh, when I saw it. And the night before, I saw Christine Lottie in the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other people who are, oh, a- Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour is really, came. What'd she say? She said it was very personal and very moving. Um, Helen Hunt came the other night. And SNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell came. Um, Did he have a a date with him? He had his daughter. Oh, okay. Oh, the one who who makes like desks in Africa. Oh, is that is she the one who does yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was her. Yeah. Or I didn't I'm know that sure. I didn't realize that it was a daughter doing that. I think so, yeah. Oh, okay. I think, well, yeah. She was did there she come and, with a desk? She did not come no, with a desk. Not. There are still over two million students in Malawi classrooms who do not have desks, and so we have a long way to go. Various people, Alan Cumming came the other night. Ooh, what'd he say? Um he I wasn't there the night oh, he came, man. but he like took pictures of the cast. He really loved it. Wow, that's great. When I saw it, I, I had I was like okay I have to make a lot of noise and laugh and clap and whoop for the sake of Michael because I know Michael but I really didn't have to fake it at all and everyone in the audience like I heard so many different people of different backgrounds say this is amazing they all used the word amazing like during the during the actual musical and there was a lot of like that is so me it was really and and I I was like in a constant state of laughter tearing up mm-hmm. and actually after I saw the the musical I saw you mm-hmm. and I like couldn't really talk to you I don't know if you noticed that 
let's you know making this all about you know um, let's spend the hour talking about Katie Halpert's emotional response to this. No, <laughs> but I couldn't really talk because I was going to start crying. Right. Um. So let's play the trailer so people get a sense of this really great um, political, personal musical, A Strange Loop. I just I just long for the days when musicals were quieter and more centered around the lives and concerns of civilized property owning adults. How is that? <laughs> I'm barely scraping by My discontentment comes in many shapes and sizes When I wake up each morning I tell myself to try I tell myself that I will make no compromises You write musicals? Yeah Awesome Have you seen Hamilton? (laughs) We want to know What's going on in New York Excuse me It's your daily self-loathing. I had some time to kill. I thought I'd stop by to remind you just how truly worthless you are. Cause after what me and your dad went through to send your black booty to NYU, it appears you'd be just running around without any direction. Snagging a man is like finding affordable housing in this town. There's a long wait list and the landlords discriminate, okay? Each time I try to chart my course, wild horses throw me off my fort. I don't think you're being totally stupid. I do think you might be overcomplicating. The same old story. Lurching after glory. I'm not going to stop asking until I get an answer, son. And I fall short. I want you to like my writing. My music. This show. Blackness, queerness, fighting back to fill this cis and all-white space. With a portrait of a portrait of a portrait of a black queer face. And a choir full of black queer voices, treble clap. And also bass that are casting spells to conjure up a big black and queer as American Broadway. So good that I'm surprised that it's being so well received. Um, And it's so both unique and um, relatable uh, because it's relatable to people who aren't um, musical theater, uh, queer, black people making musicals about right. that you know right. it, it's right. a very it's a very i mean this is all this is what great art is right it's both particular and universal right um so it's relatable but how would you describe the plot of this because that's a in itself a bit of a an interesting yeah challenge in a good way yeah so it's about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a broadway show who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's sort of cycling through his own self-hatred. And then there's there's six other characters who are called Thoughts, who are sort of the thoughts in Usher's brain, who also sort of play sort of his own, they play sort of anthropomorphic projections of like his self-hatred or... Or whatever, but then they also play like characters like his parents and and Nan on Grinder and and just various people in the world right. as well. 
Yeah, so there's a scene, a really like moving and painful scene mm-hmm. um, with a man in Inwood. Yes. Um, that's a kind of a, I don't, I don't, is it consensual? So I would say it is consensual. He okay. does consent to what happens. However, it's not a pleasant right, right. experience. And like, and he's not really engaging in it really because it's from a sex positive place. Right, right. And it's interesting because all the black, oh, black actors, all the actors are black. That's right. And it was interesting because I was remembering that scene with the Inwood guy. So mm-hmm. this is a scene in the movie, uh, in the play, where the main character, Usher, has a um, an online dating experience mm-hmm. with a with a white man in Inwood who seems right. to have a real fetish for black men, That's for younger right. black men. And um, I was remembering it and I forgot kind of that the actor was black. Right. Like, he just became that character. Yeah, that's something we sort of play with throughout the piece of, like, you never know when the character is black or not. Right. But they're all, I mean, the actors are all black, so, like, they might as well be, but you never know. Right. And so playing sort of with audience expectations. Yeah, and it made me realize how often it's just white people who Mm -hmm. are plugged into different things. That's right. Right? The the default is often whiteness in, in theater, so we wanted to sort of play with that. Right. And um, a male actor played your mom. Oh, well, I just want to like be very clear about something. Like, it's not my mom. Sorry, it's, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. This piece is. Yeah. I did draw from personal experience to write this piece, but it's. Um, I call it self-referential as opposed to autobiographical. Right. Because that sort of suggests a very sort of flat sort of apples to apples thing of like my life but really this is like a writer writing about his perception of his own life so there's a mix of sort of fact and fiction right um so we uh so it's not my mom so it's playing like a perception of of the characters usher's mom mom. yeah usher's mom right how similar is the story though like where um where does it overlap where is it where does it deviate from reality where does it keep stay faithful to it yeah so I guess like what I would how I would answer that is just that like when you're if you like hate yourself your perception of the world is going to be skewed and so like there are things in the show that are like I could say I did have a hookup with a man in Inwood it did have a racial overtone was it but it wasn't um as extreme as the um the scene in the play is because you're watching the scene through the eyes of the character going through it and sort of what it feels like to him. But it also kind of doesn't matter because like when you're in it your perception is the reality. Right. You know like you can you like if you go if something happens to you and you go and describe it to someone else they can't back up what actually happened and they also don't and even if they could they don't know how you felt about it. Right. And so I wanted to really take us inside this sort of black queer narrow protagonist to show what does it actually feel like because at the end of the day theater for me is about empathy mm. and too often we we only can sort of the theater and a lot of other media can only empathize with black characters if they're like at about to be killed or going mm. to be killed and I wanted to sort of try to test empathy from a different from mm-hmm. a place of like no he's alive and he's going through struggle right. and like can you how can many different people from many different walks of life just empathize emotionally with what he's going through? Right. So before I, I misspoke and said your mom, mm-hmm. it's Usher's mom who's played by a male actor. That's right. And it's again, it's interesting because I kind of forgot that it was 
a man. Just right. like I forgot it was a black person playing a white person, right. I kind of forgot it was a man playing a woman. And yeah, I mean, and even that sort of, because there's an there's a, a plot line within the show where Usher is asked both by his mother and his agent to write a Tyler Perry style gospel play. Hey, out to the air. So like the fact that his quote unquote, that his mother is played by a man is in itself sort of a comment on the sort of Medea man in a dress sort of trope. That's my ass. It's from wall to wall in this skirt. Um, in these plays. But like within this play, it's like, it's not just like a silly Medea character. Hold on, because somebody's screaming at me. I'm giving to choke the hell out of her. Hold on. It's a more honest portrayal. And yet even that honest portrayal gets sort of flipped on its head because it's just his perception right. of how sort of homophobic she was. Right. Or no. Which may or may not be, like, who knows how true that is. Right, exactly, right. How much it's the perception of it. Yeah. Um, especially because self-loathing is such a big part of the mm-hmm. of the work. And in fact, there's a you you have a... a character called Daily Self-Loathing. Yeah, it's like, hi, it's your da- yeah, yeah. Daily Self-Loathing, just coming. Yeah, and she sounds like Wendy Williams sometimes. Oh, nice. She's like, how you thought? <laughs> right. So we're going to play um, another song. Blackness, queerness, fighting back to fill this system. With a portrait of a portrait of a portrait of a black queer face and a choir full of black queer voices travel clap and also bass that are casting spells you conjure up a big black and queer as American Broadway big black and queer as American Broadway big black and queer as American Broadway show. that this um, musical deals with is AIDS. And there's actually a scene in it where it's like a gospel scene. It's mm-hmm. a church scene. Yeah, yeah. And in neon letters, it says HIV. Mm-hmm. And I realize it has been a while since, you know, I've seen a piece of art that deals with AIDS. And I used to all the time. Like right. one used to all the time because yeah. it was such a different um, disease then. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the significance of that and also the character in the in the musical whose name is Darnell, who who was referred to, we never meet him, but he's referred to as, as someone who... Yeah, so um, I've been working on this piece on A Strange Loop for a, a long time, and uh, it, it's always had references to HIV AIDS in it, 
and like at a certain point in development, I ended up doing this gospel play that sort of gets over to the song moment that's about HIV AIDS because like sort of character, the parent characters in the piece are constantly sort of weaponizing the threat of HIV mm-hmm. AIDS transmission to um, their son because of his homosexuality. And so when he like comes up with this gospel play, he sort of throws that back in his mother's face. And in the beginning, that song moment was just meant to be like a comment on sort of homophobia in the church and just sort of wanting to take both the form and the content of like gospel plays and gospel music and stuff and sort of like reinterpret it in this sort of like sick way. But then um, four months ago, a very dear close friend of mine passed away from AIDS related complications. And it was a friend who was actually supposed to be a collaborator on the show. And I didn't know that he was sick Uh. and because he had been keeping it very, very, very secret for many, 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 many years. Um, And he hadn't been getting treatment. And like it turned out that like he sort of had a kind of internalized homophobia around even getting treatment because Mm. he felt like he had been punished. I mean, let me let me say this. That's how I characterize it. but like in some conversations with him, that more or less feels to be a fact. Um, and that just hit me in such a devastating way because the show was like about to start happening and like and he was supposed to work on it and like that and then the show was dealing with um HIV AIDS already and like and so what ended up happening was that when he passed away, I expanded the section more to sort of address just sort of, not just him, but like to address just the, everything that sort of became very glaringly apparent to me about even the moment in the show, which is that like HIV AIDS, because part of the reason why I'd even included HIV AIDS in the the, piece in the first place was because I felt like I learned that like a bunch of friends of mine had been positive and I was like, oh, like, and we don't talk about yeah. it very much anymore in particularly in like media because like once, you know, medicine sort of really made it to, you know, sort of affluent white gay men, right. like in Truvada and prep and all the stuff comes around, like the net, like it, it I, I think it became less urgent for right. many, many people. I mean, there certainly are tons and tons of organizations who are still, Organizing around HIV/AIDS for especially for people who are um, in lower economic s- situations and Black and Brown folks and women and trans people and sex workers and so forth. But like all, on the whole, sort of the mainstream culture, we don't really talk about AIDS with very much urgency. And so then, like when my friend passed away, and because of the circumstances, sort of that he was dealing with emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, I was just started to feel like I need to like engage with this right. because. Like, he could, he was a 36 year old mm. black gay man who was a musical theater writer and a musician and arranger and composer. And I'm like a 38 year old black, gay, like, we are the, in the sense, we're the same. And there's a statistic that always gets thrown out about black gay men have a one in two chance of getting HIV in their lifetimes. And there's some people who dispute that statistic, but I just, for me, anecdotally, if that statistic were true, then he was one and I am right. two. And if I'm two, what is my relationship to one? And then like there's so many, there's so much advocacy, especially in New York City, around making sure people get access to Truvada and like and get, you know, and they understand U equals U. And all of those things are so, 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 so 
important. What's U equals U? U equals U means uh, undetectable means untransmittable, meaning uh, okay. that if you're an HIV person who has uh, HIV is undetectable right. in your uh, in your body, that you can't actually transmit it to, to anyone, even if you're not not using a condom right. or whatever. So that's like a campaign that's like that's important and um, so that people that like also helps um, guard against stigma against right. HIV AIDS. And that's for me is, the, uh, but then there's this other piece of like, if you're someone who actually believes that like God hates you or that like you don't deserve to live or that like you're being punished for having HIV and you then decide not to take medication and or whatever, like where is the medicine right. for you? Like sort of spiritually, like where are the, the advocacy groups to sort of help people with like free therapy or with, you know, the 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 have give them the support that they need to even get to the next step of i'm going to live and thrive with hiv which i know tons of people who have hiv and who are thriving and are taking care of themselves but most of them have some sort of support system so that's just something that i wanted to like begin to to address um in this piece because like you know then in the theater like which has been hit so hard right. over, you know, the last 30 years by HIV AIDS, like, it's all, it's become nearly silent. And I think that's partially, again, like, because of what I said before about the people who, once the people sort of at a certain level, level got what yeah. they needed, right. it just ceased to become an issue worth talking about, except every once in a while when, like, Angels in America gets... Right. Um, Revived them right. a couple of years, and even then, when Angels of America got revived, they didn't even mention AIDS at um, the Tonys. Which I mean, I don't know the people involved really, and there there could be reasons for that, or maybe there's oversight. But like, it just my friend's death like just hit home for me that like we have to actually start talking about it like very explicitly and not forget because there are people who are still very much suffering and who are dying. Right, because it's it's publicly kind of seen as a as an as almost like a, a something from the past like right. it used to be a death sentence right. and now you can live a life like you were saying and totally thrive but that's if you're adhering to right if you're like treatment. taking your medication right. and like sort of doing what you're what you need to do and like but it's also weird too because 2 years ago a sort of prominent composer in musical theater Michael Friedman he passed away from AIDS related AIDS related um complications and like and he was like a white man of means and even with even mm. after that people still aren't really talking about it it just was this it, to me it felt like oh my god can you believe that's how weird how did right. that happen and it is and it does feel weird but like it only feels weird because there's not there's not like a lot of mainstream public messaging around like the sort of realities of what people are dealing with like you know, and if you're gonna have HIV AIDS, I think New York City is one of the best places mm-hmm. to be in terms of being able to have access to resources. But there are people living in Washington D.C., people living in Atlanta, people living in in Mississippi, where it might it might be a little bit harder, and like yeah, because yeah. of you know funding, depending on like what governor you have and right. how they want to allocate resources and stigma and, and stigma, and it's just so much stigma. And to me, stigma. I say that like silence, secret st- stigma, and shame are actual the viruses that like mm-hmm. can get a hold of people that are more powerful than HIV. You know, because like the stigma is about HIV negative people. Like we, it's I think it's our responsibility. Uh. I'm H- I'm gonna say I'm HIV negative, but and I feel like it's my and other HIV negative people's responsibility to 
to remove the stigma. I mean, to really do it, to like put some skin in the game of like, of like making sure that HIV positive people feel safe and supported from the moment of diagnosis. So how how would how does one do that? How do we I mean, do that's that? something that I'm learning because like this is all so new to me. Because with my friend, I felt so much sadness and guilt because right. I didn't see what was right in front of me. But I didn't see what was right in front of me because like I'm from a generation that didn't really have to look at it. Right. Up beyond like narratives on in like in movies like Philadelphia, Philadelphia or right. whatever or like sort of. I remember, Jump Street. yeah, or oh right, Twenty One Jump Street, or like I remember, like I learned about HIV/AIDS at school as like a fear mongering. Right. Like, it was always transmitted to me as like no you're gonna right, like that you're that that it's gonna like beware, beware right. of this illness that like comes from doing bad things, you know, and like and and it's and I just think that like I'm learning even myself how to like to address stigma, and so like. I think the first thing that we have to do is talk about it. Yeah. Like, talk about it in 2019. Talk about it in 2020. Talk about it in 2021. Like, I don't know necessarily any of the... I'm sure the candidates all have positions on this, but, like, I think that should be an issue that should Kamala be, wants to lock them up, probably. Maybe. I mean, but, like, someone should ask her. Right. Someone should ask all of them. Like, what are all of their HIV AIDS... Um, platforms and policies like can any of them talk about it from a personal standpoint um, in any way like it's it's, I just feel like it needs to not be this sort of like distant problem that we can sort of just solve just by throwing money at funders and non-profits you know once HIV sort of entered you know our cultural awareness like I mean there was a lot of shaming and 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 bad information put out there and like people have a lot of fear and like you know it's already mixed in with like a sort of puritanical feelings about sex and like and then and that's like a whole other thing and then like you bring in the church and the church has so much economic power and it spreads these messages and like it's just like it's it's a it's a multi-pronged problem but and that's another reason why i just say that like stigma is on hiv negative people like it's, it's on us to, 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 to challenge, to it challenge or, and to fight it yeah. and to expose it um, everywhere we see it because like HIV positive people depending on like you know what your your economic background yeah. is so many factors like are very vulnerable to all of that to all of those to that negative energy and like and it can be and homophobia is like I, for me homophobia equals death queerphobia yeah. equals death Silence um, equals death. Silence that, equals was death. that was the act up um, motto. phrase model for many years, yeah. and that and I find that to be true. Like yeah. with my friend, like he he he'd known that he was positive for I think ten years, mm. and like he'd said nothing to not to me, but not and I don't think so really to anyone. So did you didn't know he was? Positive? I did not until a month before he died, and then he told you, and then he told me. Um, and by that point, I didn't know that it was. Too late. I mean, they, you know what I mean? Like, because I did, because, right. like, didn't... I had no, I had no, I was a completely ignorant and I felt such guilt about that, about like not knowing how to support him sort of in that last month. I just thought, we're going to fix it, we're going to fix it, we're going right. to fix it. And so I, and you know, and lots of people go through things like that. Um, did you feel survivor guilt? Because um, the one you said that one and two. Well, I mean, I guess like for me, it was interesting because. I received similar messaging to him. I just chose to 
I just went in the opposite direction right. of like policing my sexuality for many, many, many years, which is also something that sort of you see in a strange loop to a certain extent. And that I was like, oh, no, 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 I cannot get HIV no matter what. And I'm going to, as a result, like really clam up. Yeah. Um, whereas he sort of felt like I'm destined or my my Your perception, my of, perception of him is that he, he sort of was like, I am doomed. This is going to happen one way or the other. I deserve it. You know, like that right. sort of thing. And so, was he religious or had it just uh, seeped I, into his consciousness? I, I, my perception is that it had seeped into his consciousness, but he did grow up in a religious home. But like, I don't think that he and he often made references to God, like in our conversations. But I always sort of like took that to be a very general thing. Yeah. Um, but I but like just based on sort of what I had learned from post his death, talking to people in his life and family members and so forth, um, and that there was some there was some truth to that. And so what do you wish you had done, and what, because you're talking about how the onus is on, on uh, um, HIV negative people. I mean, I don't, I actually, honestly, like, I don't know that I could have done anything because I didn't know. Right. Um, but, like, that's why I say, like, his death wasn't my fault. It wasn't anybody's fault, but it's right. everybody's responsibility. Yeah. Um, I, I like if I could. I didn't, and just to clarify, I didn't mean to imply that, but you were. No, yeah, no, yeah, no, I understand. Was, but yeah. like, I just mean, like, I think that, you know, there's just so. Like, I think about the fact that, like, there's this organization called Broadway Bears that does this um, sort of strip a thon every year where they raise money for HIV funding, and that's all fine and good. But, like, part of me wonders now, like, are any of the people involved in doing that, are they positive? Mm. Can they come forward as positive people while doing that? Is that a value that's important to that organization? Is like, is there any messaging in these organizations that are raising all of this money for funding and treatments and studies and all that? Is Can there be any money raised literally around like mental health and around sort of like catching people at their most sort of emotionally vulnerable places. I mean, the truth of it also is that, like, every individual person has to decide what they want to do. Right. But I just think that I my my dream is that like, there could be some sort of safety net that can catch people, that can, like, message the people of, like, are you okay? Yeah. How do you feel? Like, do you, can, and, like, that you could get, I don't know if it's free therapy, if right. it's, like, s- some sort of... Medicare for all. Medicare for all would be a, a, go a long way to addressing... Yeah part of this issue it's just but like that's just the thing I I think is a missing ingredient in all of this not just like here you can take these pills because like one thing I know from talking to a lot of my HIV positive friends is that like some of them go through phases where they're not adhering to right. medicine because like taking it can be a, a stressor and all kinds of things yeah. you know so it's not just about taking the pills it's also about like sort of the, the psychological spiritual and emotional components yeah we are going to play another song from A Strange Loop. I don't have AIDS. And I don't care about marriage. And I will never be pushing a loud ass baby around in a carriage. No, I'll just walk around with a scowl on my face like I'm Betty. Who's not looking for now As much as 15 
elevator <laughs> When I wanna go out on a Saturday night I don't feel that I can <laughs> Because the second wave feminist to me Is at war with a dick-sucking black gay man Appropriately enough, you're wearing a shirt that your char- that the character in the play Usher wears. I saw you in a in a black version. This is a maroon version, and it says imperialist and white supremacist and capitalist and patriarchy. Those words are have lines through them, and then it says hashtag bell hooks. Mm-hmm. So tell us what that's about. Um, so it's just a shirt that like my friend Ben Snyder sort of designed a little bit with a little tiny help with for me. Like we both are. Bell Hooks fans, and so he wanted to make a t-shirt that we got to her, so, like, we made it. And then I just, like, bought, like, seven copies of it, and I'd sort of, and I have it in different colors, and I wear it sort of pretty much every day. Um, it's kind of like my uniform. Um, and I just, it, and when we were doing the costume design for the show, we wanted to, the costume designer wanted to figure out what would Usher be wearing when he wasn't wearing his, like, Usher uniform, and, it, and he wanted him to wear a black shirt, but that seemed a little too static. And so he just noticed that, like, I wear this T-shirt all the time, and it just seemed to make sense with the character. So they sort of did a knockoff version that the character wore that wears in the, in the show. We are going to co- transition a little bit 
to um, our other guest who uh, just came into the studio. There's some common threads, po uh, politics, uh, <laughs> j social justice, awareness. Um, we have Sophie Elman-Golan, who is with uh, Never Again Action, a collective of Jewish activists who organized the shutdown at New Jersey's Elizabeth Detention Center. Jewish activists are holding similar actions in San Francisco and LA later this week. And Sophie's also a member of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and was a national organizer of the Women's March. So welcome, Sophie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So tell listeners what you guys are doing and why you're doing it and what the term never again means and if these are concentration camps. Um, you yeah, know, all these so easy questions. All those easy questions in one in one answer. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what we did on Sunday was gathered as Jews in support of uh, an organization called Movimiento Cosecha, um, which is an organization of by and for undocumented youth who've been organizing against ICE since, since the Obama administration. Um, and it's really important, we believe, for Jews to support frontline groups um, of directly impacted people on this issue. So we talked to Cosecha about what they found um, would be helpful, and one of the things that they said to us was that while what's happening on the border is beyond horrific, so many people have the idea that this crisis is restricted to the border, mm -hmm. and it's not. It's in our backyards. The detention facility we, set we shut down yesterday is 10 miles outside of New York City. Wow. That's it. It's so close. And, and that's not just in this city, in this state. It's, uh, there are facilities all over the country, and even in, in towns where there aren't um, detention centers nearby, ICE's reign of terror is really everywhere, um, inf inflicting the lives of 11 million undocumented people. And as Jews, we feel with our history, both of the Holocaust, but also you know the history of, of pogroms right. that even precedes that, um, that reigns of, of State terror right. or state allowed terror um, hit pretty uh, hit pretty deeply for us, and we say never again because those are the words that are used to say never again to the Holocaust. But for us, we are not going to wait until conditions exactly mirror the right. Holocaust to take action. That's unacceptable. Um, right. We should be doing everything in our power to prevent that from happening, yeah. and that means taking taking real escalated action now. Right. Yeah. This whole never again to Jews um, and as if it doesn't apply to other groups. I mean, that's, if you want to say it that way, that's that's on you, but you're basically, a, I would say, a, a xenophobic, uh, racist, uh, Jewish chauvinist. Uh, I right. say this as a Jew non-chauvinist, but... Um, <laughs> right, I mean, it's, it's never going to be... Um, the late 1930s in Nazi Germany right. again, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we're never going to exactly mimic the conditions, but what we can do is take lessons and have values and actually live by them. Yeah. I mean, also other people would say it's it's about Jews. I mean, they say this implicitly or explicitly, but they don't particularly care about when it happens to other groups. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm talking about a minority of people who I think maybe talk the talk about, about uh, like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, you know, they pretend to be anti-bigotry, but of course they also support Israel's incredibly bigoted policies and they silence anyone who's critical of it. But, um, you know, there is like, to, you know, if you, there is tikkun olam, right? The, this Jewish principle of repairing the world, which is uh, a universalist mm -hmm. one, which is just as Jewish as being, uh, I would say as being, observant or yeah. uh, just caring about other Jews, which I think is a Shonda. 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah. and I and I would say this this issue hits home for a lot of Jews. I mean, just numbers wise, the vast majority of Jews don't support this president. The vast majority right. of Jews are horrified by um, specific policies like the Muslim ban, like um, what's happening to to immigrants right now. I think what's happening is we're seeing a, a failure of leadership from the powerful institutions, just the ones that are powerful right. within our communities. APAC, um, just from organizations that are doing, I mean, this would fall outside of APAC's purview, but for, but from institutions that actually um, have a lot of attention oh, okay. from from the majority of our community, they are failing to to do what, what I think our communities are craving. And so we're stepping up, we're unaffiliated, we're not an organization and we're not trying to be. We're simply saying that we think everybody, non-Jews, and Jews alike, but we're specifically speaking to our community, um, to fellow Jews, need to take action. It's it is absolutely imperative that we do everything possible to stop the mass atrocities that our government is perpetuating. So put them on blast. Which are the organizations that are failing? I do not get angry. If somebody do something to me, I do something to them. This is common sense. Um, well, uh, it's no secret um, for folks who know me that uh, I I think that the ADL has fallen short on on some on some key areas. But I would also say, you know, there are other organizations as well. I mean, the American Jewish Congress, for example, just created um, or just you know championed uh, the creation of a Black Jewish caucus that Lee Zeldin is a member of. This oh, is Lee Zeldin who campaigned for Congress with Sebastian Gorka and yeah. who targeted Ilhan Omar. Right. So who played a key anti-Semitic message that he got left on his message machine, played it and asked like Ilhan Omar if she had to say anything to say about it. Which right. is like, As imagine if, directly, if someone did that to him, like with an Islamophobic mm-hmm. message, yeah. But I would also say, he you know, there are Twitter. a lot of great organizations that are doing this work around the country. Um, uh, Jay Fredge in New York City. Ben Jews the, for Racial and Economic yes. Justice. Ben the Ark Nationwide. You have Detroit Jews for Justice. You have Carolina Jews for Justice. You have Jews United for Justice in D.C. You have Jewish Community Action Minnesota. Um, but they're small organizations. They need support. But but let's also not forget that you know we we need to actually like we need to support uh, tangibly materially. Uh, directly impacted led groups, and that's why I'm really proud. We we managed to actually raise a sort of shocking amount of money um, after this action. We just asked people to donate so that we could ha- support the legal fees of the folks who got arrested yesterday, and we raised so much more money um, than we needed mm-hmm. for that, and all of that money is going directly to Cosecha. So tell us what happened. You went there. Um, who got arrested? How many people? Uh, what was the effect of it? You shut it down. What does that mean? So there are about 200 of us who came together. Um, we marched about a mile and a half to... Uh, to the detention center, um, which is owned by both ICE and Core Civic, which is one of the largest right. private prison companies um, in the country, which our tax dollars subsidize. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we arrived there. We had people. We had thirty-six people, um, thirty-six Jewish people who all agreed to risk arrest. We did not um, intend for that to be the number for any non-Jews listening out there. Thirty-six is a special number for Jews. It's a multiple of um, eighteen, which symbolizes or life, so, um, but it, it was beshared. It wasn't uh, intended right. that way. Um, Were you like, here, just take one more. You're at 35. You're like, <laughs> or this no, guy looks 137. Like no, I'm sorry, we yeah, exactly, yeah. Um No, so uh, basically what we did is we blockaded the entrance um, and exit. We waited until after visiting hours because we didn't want to impede any family right, members course, who were visiting right. people inside. Um, and we... Uh, 
intentionally showed up in sort of like friendly signs, bright colors, because we wanted anyone who saw us who maybe didn't um, speak English or saw right. a group of predominantly white people and didn't want them to think that this was like a scary, you know, right. anti-immigrant militia or right. something. So um, we showed up, we blockaded the entrance, and as uh, guards who were working in the facility were trying to change shifts or leave, we made it impossible for them to get out. Um, and uh, at one point, they tried to actually cut the bolts of um, an opposite gate that had been bolted shut in order to have people exit, have cars exit that way. And uh, half of the folks who were blockading ran back oh, wow. and sat down in front of that. So they were really penned in from, from either side. My people have been here for many, many years. And for those years, they've been criminalized. They've been dehumanized. But yet we are here strong and powerful. So you kept the the employees trapped. Yes. That's okay. I'm just trying to get a sense of it. And that was that was that to give them a, a teeny sense of like what's happening to the people that they're I don't think it came even close. No, they right, were right, in their well, cars in a parking lot. Yeah. Um but uh I think it, it was more to to um, make it impossible for them to continue conducting business. And actually, the statement that the city of Elizabeth sent out, I want to find it, um, uh, actually, I think specifically referred to the charges as the we were the charges were obstructing public passage. But they also said that we intentionally impeded them from conducting their commerce. Right. Their commerce is housing human beings. Yeah. Right. That's their housing commerce. That's, a that's what for, they're yeah. right. That's what they're making. Detaining, so, so, yes, up, we yeah. absolutely did intend to right. um, obstruct their commerce. And then what happened? Then they left and. So then they um, then they arrested the folks. Actually, they first they began uh, arresting people, and then more people ran up and took the place of the people they'd arrested. Um, and they had to actually they had the sheriff's van, so then they had to call local police because they didn't have enough room in the vans um, for all thirty six. So they arrested the folks. Um, and one of the things we said is, you know, the action isn't over until everyone is free. So that means the action isn't over until the people who are arrested are free, but it's also not over until literally every single person who's in detention is right. free. And how many are in that facility? I'm not positive of the numbers that are in that okay. facility. Um, it's one of many. It's one of the biggest in New Jersey. There's also one in Newark. And did you see anything? Um, were you able to see anything inside the... No, no. it looks like a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what it is. Did you see any family members visiting, coming and going? Um, we actually did see a family member that had uh, just been leaving um, and talked to them. I had, I was, I was, got to talk to them for a little bit. Um, what did they say? I don't want to say too much because they, they didn't want to say that okay. much about... They were a little bit nervous about being identified, but they did say that it felt very meaningful for them. And they actually stayed with us for a little bit oh, wow. um, while we protested that's great mm -hmm. um and so what is uh you know there is this controversy because uh aoc alexandria ocasio-cortez talked about concentration camps and liz cheney major champion of jews got mad at her and chastised her on twitter and said you know she didn't know her history and uh aoc uh to her credit did not uh back down which i was really happy about because there's a lot of pressure to do that we saw that mm -hmm. with ilan omar and, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole debate about wh when we can use the word Holocaust, genocide, concentration camps. Liz Cheney had said, please, AOC, do us all a favor and spend just a few minutes learning some actual history. Six million Jews were exterminated in the Holocaust. You demean their memory and disgrace yourself with comments like this. Yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, using the word exterminated was literally the Nazi term that they used to describe Jews. So I don't, as a Jewish person, don't particularly appreciate uh, Liz Cheney using that to describe what was done to Jewish uh, that's people. That's interesting, right. Um, look, I would say Liz Cheney, I would refer to as um, 
literally the devil's spawn. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, look, I mean, I think that there's a pretty, first of all, we are, I, I think it is far more outrageous that politicians have spent more time discussing or feigning outrage over the words we use to describe these camps and these conditions than they have over the camps and conditions right. themselves. I'm not interested, and, and the folks who protest today are not interested in having arguments about semantics. We're interested in the fact, and we're, we're interested in arguing and taking action over the fact that people are being treated horrifically and their human rights are being violated en masse and our government is actively profiting from right. it. The other thing I would say is that uh, we've heard pretty directly actually from Liz Cheney herself that it's uh, a key part of the Republican strategy to demonize Democrats in, for the 2020 elections as infanticiders, socialists, and anti-Semites. Yeah, so, I'm all of those things. Right. This, <laughs> so this is not... By their definitions, yeah. This is not a... This is not like... Right, this is not her yeah. taking outrage. This is her strategically yeah, doing... Right, and, right. and doing it using Jews right, to do exactly, that. Yeah. And we won't be used that right. way. Yeah, I actually have a theory that it's something else, which is that her father's heart runs on on this like this is what keeps him alive when he hears about people being locked up and kids being separated this gives him life this gives him meaning and without that he would just keel over um, so she's just a loving daughter yeah she's a good daughter yeah. yeah it was a mm-hmm. good father's day present um well we are out of time and i would love to have both of you back on so uh tell us where people can find you uh michael jackson where can people find you in your brilliant uh musical um you can if you want to come see a strange loop we're running until july 28th at playwrights horizons um uh, go to playwrightshorizons.org to get tickets you can find me on instagram at, at the living michael jackson on twitter at at the living mj um, and I, my website is thelivingmichaeljackson.com um, you can follow along with uh, Never Again Action by going to neveragainaction.com you can follow Never Again Action on Twitter by neveragainactn on Twitter you can also follow Cosecha at C-O-S-E-C-H-A movement um, and you can follow me on Twitter at E.G. Sophie Great. Also, I want to give my, eh, not myself a shout out. I want to tell listeners about an article I wrote for FAIR about. Um, I want to give you a shout out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I wrote an article for FAIR about this woman, um, Sydney Ember, who writes at the New York Times and uh, absolutely commits media malpractice. Uh, you can find this at FAIR.org. But she uh, hates Bernie Sanders. She comes from BlackRock, which isn't surprising, which is the biggest um, investor in coal. And her father-in-law was the CEO of Bain Capital. And she quotes people in her articles who are lobbyists, and she pretends they work in education. She quoted Otto Reich, who is, has, his, has blood on his hands. He was doing PR for the Contras. So that's appropriate. Ask him about what he thinks about Bernie Sanders supporting the Sandinistas that are opposing the Contras. Um, and uh, yeah, and she li- and she lies about her sources. She she quoted someone who worked for Ready for Hillary without saying that she had worked for Ready for Hillary. Um, so just I want everyone to know that when they read the New York Times, it's not just awful people like Brett Stevens, Steffens, whatever, Barry Weiss, who own kind of their wear their bias on their sleeves, but their quote unquote objective reporting is extremely biased. So you got to have that. Um, Remember that, and I'll I'll be talking more about this about the media bias and and uh, against the left, and also maybe Bernie Sanders. Not that I you know focus on him or anything. You can hear the Katie Halper show on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can find our bonus with Michael and every other bonus at Patreon.com/slash/the Katie Halper show. Again, that's Patreon.com. 
slash the Katie Halber show. Now I'm entering Penn Station. All right. Uh, okay, thanks. Don't forget, find a bonus episode, which includes really beautiful songs by Michael, my favorite one called Memory Song, at patreon.com slash the Katie Halber show. On my people, which side are you on?